You're listening to The Ascent Archive, a podcast of oral histories with rock climbers collected by the University of Utah and produced by the J. Willard Marriott Library. I'm Tali Kasuchi, librarian, rock climber, and oral historian. And I'm Rachel Whitman, and I'm also a librarian. For decades, memory workers, including historians, librarians, and archivists, have conducted oral histories to document life experiences of notable groups of people. These oral history transcripts, and sometimes their accompanying audio and video, are kept in the archives of libraries and museums around the world with varying degrees of access. This podcast, focusing on interviews with rock climbers, is an innovative approach to make oral histories more accessible and easier to listen to on the go or at faster speeds. The Ascent Archive podcast features oral histories that I conducted for the Rock Climbers Oral History Project and others from the American West Center's Ever Al-Kuli Oral History Project. To find out more about these collections, visit the Ascent Archive website, which is included in the show description. You're about to hear an oral history that is unedited. Please excuse possible interruptions, sound quality issues, potentially outdated or offensive terminology, and the occasional curse word. In this episode, we'll hear from Jeff Lowe. Jeff was interviewed by a group of historians in 2009. Jeff was an accomplished mountaineer, developed climbing equipment, authored many books, and organized climbing events and festivals such as the Snowbird, World Cup competitions, and ice climbing in the Winter X Games. Hope you enjoy. Okay, today is Tuesday, November 3rd. I'm Matt Driscoll, and I'm with Jeff Lowe, and we're going to talk about um, some of uh, the transitions in Jeff's climbing in the 70s. So, once the, uh, once the phone, phone stops ringing. Quits, quits ringing. That's your cue. Yeah, so uh, somewhere earlier we talked about my rock climbing up to probably the early 70s and the big wall climbs. All right, we'll try this again. Okay. We're in the 70s. <laughs> okay. And uh, as far as rock climbing goes, which is the basis for, for all mountaineering, really is being able to move on rock well, but... In the in the 60s and early 70s, um, my interest was really pretty focused on big walls, and that involved ape climbing as well as uh, free climbing. And I wasn't so highly focused just on free climbing, but by about 1973, I had done probably 30 or 40 uh, big walls and uh, with using aid climbing techniques. And I had gotten to the point where <clears throat> some of the mystery had gone out of the, uh, uh, the activity, and I pretty much knew <clears throat> that with... Um, the right partner, and using all the gear that was even available back then, including bolts uh, that could be hand-drilled, 
I could pretty much start at the bottom of any cliff and climb to the top. And there was little question uh, of being able to do that successfully. And the uh, that really goes against the grain of uh, the adventure side of climbing. You want to have, uh, at least I want to have some question as to whether I can do a climb to, um, uh, to, to be able to answer some internal qu questions about myself. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in 1973, in September, uh, John Wyland and I made a new route on uh, a formation next to Mount uh, Whitney in the Sierra Nevada. And the formation is called Keeler Needle. And on the east face, uh, there was one route on the left side, and we did a route on the right center uh, of Keeler Needle, and we spent a little over two days on the climb, and we did it partly using aid techniques and partly free climbing techniques. And I had decided by the time we got to the top of that climb that I was pretty much through with... Uh, aid climbing that from there on out I would basically try to do uh, any rock climb that I was going to do, even a big wall uh, with free climbing techniques only to put some adventure and doubt about the outcome back into the um, equation. And the very next uh, summer, one of the first real tests of that commitment was um, on a route in the uh, Wind Rivers on a square top uh, mountain in the, in the northern winds above the Green River Lakes. And it, Square Top has a really beautiful west pillar or buttress on it that's uh, about 1,800 feet high. And my brother Greg and I and uh, Kent Christensen, who I've mentioned before, Kent's always uh, known as Hack, but Greg and Hack and I went to... Uh, the west face of uh, west buttress of square top this is summer of 73 74 74 is the next summer mm -hmm. and um, we didn't quite do it completely free because there, there was some <coughs> uh, kind of a waterfall in the main crack system low down 
which required a couple of uh, point, points of aid to get around, but the rest was free, and it, it, it essentially was a free climb. And it was just great to um, uh, be approaching things in that style. And the Wind Rivers in particular, and most high mountains, at least the granite peaks in the high mountains, are more featured than, say, a comparable wall in Yos Yosemite Valley would be. So they lend themselves quite readily to, to free climbing. <coughs> uh, so that was a good start with that approach. And... Um, it was, um, over the years, um, uh, I was never really let down uh, with that approach. There were uh, many climbs that, um, that in the old days would have been uh, mixed free and aid uh, that uh, went quite readily as uh, pure free climbs. And some of them were uh, not classic big walls because they were too short. But the uh, uh, adapting that... Um, that approach to things, that uh, no aid approach to things, allowed me to uh, just uh, drop aid climbing from my repertoire on short routes or long routes mm -hmm. or anything, and it put all the adventure and excitement back into climbing that I had, um, into rock climbing that had gone missing uh, with the over-equipped big wall style. I kind of equate it to using fixed ropes and camps in the Himalayas. That's too heavy, too much gear. Uh, using Sherpas and oxygen, bottled oxygen, it kills the adventure. And in in a similar way, the all the egg climbing gear that's available and portal edges and all this uh, all this stuff that um, they have now sort of sort of uh, means anything is possible, and there's um, if you don't limit your means it sort of takes away some of the meaning of the uh, of the exercise mm -hmm. or of the process. Mm -hmm. So um, um, for the next 20 years um, I was uh, when I wasn't climbing in the Himalayas or uh, ice climbing in winter, I was looking for good free climbs, 
to do with a variety of partners. And short free climbs were always great, um, but my great uh, my biggest desire was for long uh, free climbs, and I always wanted to work up to doing uh, uh, one of the very long uh, granite. Uh, spires in the Himalayas and over the years I did work up to that but I, I want to think of uh, some of the <clears throat> different types of uh, um, free climbs that were represented by uh, um, this period this 20-year period of climbing after deciding not to use aid. And um, as, you're, as you're thinking of, of some of those, um, were there many other climbers interested in the same thing at the time? Yes. Would you feel like there was a movement behind, behind this? Yes, there was. And um, in Yosemite... It had started in the 60s, uh, free climbing the, the larger routes with a guy named Frank Sacker. And uh, Frank had uh, done two or three grade five routes in Yosemite, which had required several days on the first ascent and a lot of aid. And he and partners had limited had eliminated the aid from those climbs. And then in the early seventies, there were some new young climbers in Yosemite Valley that uh, called themselves uh, Stone Masters, and they were. Uh, Jim Bridwell was their kind of mentor, and John Backer was one, and um, and um, John Long and uh, Richard Harrison and Dale Bard and uh, Barry Bates and Mark Clemens and. Um, Peter Hahn, and these guys were pushing the free climbing on the short free routes, but uh, Ron Cock and, and John Backer and John Long uh, did a climb in about 74, I think, the same year that I did uh, my first mountain route, which was all but free um, on, on square top. They did a route called um, Astro Man on Washington Column, and that was a, um, a standard setting route and one that had 
would have been considered impossible to free climb just a few years before. So that was very much uh, 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 sort of the leading edge of this attempt to free climb the big walls, and it's con continued since mm -hmm. then. And the um, this going back a bit, it was always um, in my mind to climb as free as possible on these walls and on routes in the in the uh, wind rivers. I had done some very hard free climbing in the course of some of these uh, um, mixed free and aid climbing. Uh, Roots, but I never really just said, okay, if I can't free climb it, I won't do it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's a different different thing. In fact, um, I think one of the first routes I did in the Wind Rivers, the North Tower of Haystack, only had a second ascent early in the 2000s, and um, that <coughs> partly it was because it has hard aid, and partly it's it, there's hard free climbing on it too, and and some of the pitches which I did, which were uh, 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 I did completely free on the first ascent back in '69 uh, are the climbers rated them 511 mm -hmm. today so um, even though i wasn't focused on doing everything completely free i would climb to as high a standard as i could mm -hmm. and there was a uh, change overall at the end of the 70s, um, even in small uh, venues like um, Little Cottonwood Canyon in Utah, or so you were saying that uh, there was also a change going on during the late 70s, even in the smaller venues yeah. like Little Cottonwood. Yeah, up to that time. Um, even on smaller climbs uh, of two or three or even one pitch, people were happy to use some aid on the climbs. And uh, But by the late 60s, early 70s, the push from leading climbers was to do everything without uh, aid. So... Um, so guys like Jim Erickson and Duncan Ferguson were doing things like the Naked Edge in Boulder or in El Dorado Canyon uh, completely free and um, there weren't too many aid climbs in Little Cottonwood Canyon that I can remember from back there uh, but whatever there was, people would 
try to free climb. Um, and I, I was, even while I was doing big walls in the late 1660s and early 70s, I was also trying to stay abreast with the, the free climbs that were being done. And although I was never a top free climber, I always managed to uh, be able to repeat the current state of the art in mm -hmm. Yosemite or El Dorado or, or uh, in Utah, wherever. So, so I had a good basis of free climbing to fall back on when I decided that I was just going to be a free climber mm -hmm. rather than uh, an aid climber on the walls, too. And then um, over the years in the, uh, you know, I shifted my main en emphasis to ice climbing and Himalayan climbs and uh, South American climbs, but there was always uh, a lot of rock climbing back closer to home. And uh, with the best of the climbs uh, being a progression on the way to, um, I've got something in my eye that's bugging me, but a progression on the way to uh, maybe eventually trying one of the big, biggest granite climbs in the world in the is or probably Karakoram and trying to do it free. Um, but along the way, there were many climbs that were just in their own right uh, worthwhile and classic and different sorts. And um, some I, I, I'll just name a few of them and just as examples. But some of the climbs, well, one thing that I want to say is I, uh, during most of that time, all of that time actually, I was living in Colorado and so, um, Colorado, the high mountains are a wonderful cragging. So living uh, most of the 70s, 80s, and 90s in Colorado, um, I came to greatly appreciate the mountains there. They're not... Uh, as rugged as the Alps or Canadian Rockies, but there's uh, a huge amount of good alpine cragging uh, available and tons of new routes to do outside of Boulder in the Indian Peaks and in the uh, um, in Longs Peak National Park. 
Uh, there's just enormous amounts of of climbing to do. And um, did you live around Boulder? Yeah, I I lived in the Boulder area for 30 years. So uh, my friends and I would get a day or so often we could run up and do a new route in the mountains and there were um, um, climbs like in in Rocky Mountain National Park big slab climbs like um, uh, climb Mark Wilford and I did called Risky Business which was 10 pitches of of uh, of high angle slab up to five eleven plus that Mark and I did without uh, bolts. We didn't carry bolts and uh, made a real adventurous climb. It was later um, bolted by some climbers who didn't uh, know that we had done it. They thought they were doing a new route, even though we did report our route. They thought where they were going couldn't have been climbed without the bolts. So unfortunately, it got kind of erased by the action of these climbers. But um, we we never did a, a, a detailed topo of the climb and published that so it's partly our own uh, fault for not doing that but there's just an incredible amount of mountain rock uh, there to play on and uh, roots uh, everything from unprotected blank slabs like uh, risky business to cracks of all sizes, including off-width, which is cracks too wide to get your uh, um, any part of your body securely jammed in and too narrow to, to um, get your whole body into. So they're, uh, we call them rattly. They're, you can't uh, easily get secured and one of the <coughs> best off with roots uh, in Colorado is a climb Dan Hare and I did called um, Road, Road Warrior near Mount Evans it's five pitches long with uh, three of them being off with pitches in a nice high uh, alpine cirque. And that's um, another example of the variety that's there. Um, There's just so much variety, and there were so many good climbs to do that I could list 
dozens of them over those next years. Um, I think uh, in terms of the progression to to a, a long route in the Himalayas free, there were some climbs along that would have been done in the old big wall style uh, mixed free and aid um, prior to my conversion to complete free climber. And some of the good ones were uh, um, the feather buttress and the um, uh, the uh, a root called black elk, uh, and both of these climbs were on war bonnet in the Wind River Mountains, and I did both of those climbs with Charlie Fowler. And they were climbs equivalent to the Diamond of Long's Peak, which had recently been free climbed in the mid 70s and um, at 510 to 511 standard. And these were climbs of that same uh, quality and standard up in, in the winds. And uh, another climb of that nature would be a climb called uh, the Black Crystal Route in the uh, in the, in the Sawtooth of Idaho that I did with a guy named Kevin Swigert. Uh, Kevin was a U.S. Uh, cross-country ski team member and uh, winner of the old television uh, show called um, Survival of the Fittest. Mm -hmm. He won it for four or five years in, hmm. in a row. He was really fit. But uh, that was an, another climb that would have been partly, at least partly aided in the old days. But we managed to do it at about 512, uh, with the crux being about 512. And then um, going back to Zion in the mid-80s, I um, made a, a trip to, um, with Mark Wilford specifically, to try and do some long free climbs. And although we, on our major uh, effort, we failed. Yeah, Mark and I failed in our biggest uh, project when we went there, free climbing project in the mid 80s. But we did succeed. Um, on a route called uh, Sandblaster, which was uh, up to hard 511, and obviously um, 
the Zion Rock uh, lends itself to free climbing just like uh, uh, Yosemite Granite, and that's been proven quite well in the last a dozen years or so, with most of the big walls going free there too. So, big wall <coughs> aid climbing is uh, a matter of choice, actually. You know, you can get up a lot of big walls without having to uh, aid climb. And I think it's um, going to... <coughs> Proved to be um, in the future that fewer and fewer walls will be climbed with aid, although these days people are still doing doing both. Could you give me some <laughs> <laughs> Still going? Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, so anyway, that was uh, just a little side trip to Zion. Um, actually, uh, one of the best free climbs I ever did was in Zion a few years later. Um, I had gone with Catherine Destabel um, in 1991 to um, the Kolob Canyon sections, and Catherine was wanting to learn how to aid climb because she wanted to do a big new uh, aid climb on the Drew in. Uh, in Chamonix, and she didn't know much aid, so I spent about a month in Utah, Utah with Catherine teaching her to aid climb, and we finished up <clears throat> with a new route in uh, the Kolob Canyon sections on Perea Point. Uh, we called the route Wind, Sand, and Stars, and we did it uh, mixed free and aid style in classic old style. But I realized while we were doing it that it could very well be a free climb. So the next year, I went back with Lisa Gennady and um, Steve Petro, and we spent one weekend uh, uh, going up and reconnoitering the climb for free climbing possibilities. 
placing some bolts in key places to protect the free climbing. And the next week went back and um, did the climb all free. So, but that's a little sidelight. Um, I did finally get a uh, an opportunity, or sort of made the opportunity to um, <coughs> do a big wall free in the Caracorum in 1990. Uh, ESPN had asked me if uh, if there was a climb I wanted to do in the Himalayas and we could make a film of and um, I uh, had uh, uh, well, it didn't take me long to come up with the idea to go to uh, Trango Tower in Pakistan and try to do a free climb on Trango Tower, and I was running the uh, uh, Snowbird uh, Sport Climbing Contest back then, International Sport Climbing Competitions, and Catherine Destevel was, I met Catherine in the process of that, and I needed a partner that would be good for TV and also that would be a strong free climbing partner. And I asked Catherine if she wanted to go to Trango, and she jumped at the chance. So we went there in uh, 1990 and made the second free climb of Trango. Um, and that was uh, the realization of this dream of mine to do a pure big wall rock climb in a free, uh, free uh, pure free climbing uh, style in the Himalayas. What's uh, what's that climb like um, in terms of, I don't know, the, the shapes, the number of pitches? That, well, there, I think there's 32 pitches and, and uh, so it's, uh, it's about the size of El Capitan, but it's at 20,000 feet and it's got the weather and all that. So some of our challenges were simply uh, ice in the cracks in addition to hard climbing. The um, Although we did a, uh, I think, seven or nine pitch new start to the climb, uh, th those pitches were only up to 510, and then we jo joined uh, what's become known as the Slovenian route on the upper um, 20 or so pitches. And um, those are up to 512. But you have also to deal with um, ice, ice in the cracks at times and stuff. And we, we just managed to pull it off 
I think it's only had two uh, free ascents that I know of, completely free ascents. We, uh, we were a year after Wolfgang Gulick and, uh, and party made the first free ascent. And uh, we did it, and then I haven't heard of anybody doing that route free since then. Um, I remember one pitch that was an off-width crack about four or five inches, and only the very edge of the crack was free of ice. So I had to lie back um, for a good 60 feet with no protection, and uh, it was it was relatively hard climbing. I don't know if it was free of ice. It probably would be five nine mm-hmm. or five ten, but it was very demanding uh, the way it was, mm-hmm. and the lack of protection was. Catherine Belaine was freaked out completely. But it was a great time, and and uh, Catherine was a wonderful partner for a very solid free climber. And we did make a film for uh, ESPN mm-hmm. on the climb that David uh, Brashears uh, shot, or at least he led the crew that shot the, shot the film. So that was uh, kind of (coughs) my greatest dream, and I uh, got to realize that dream of free climbing in the Himalayas. Eventually, in the 90s, I ended up um, going back on my... my commitment to free climbing a little bit because I had people asking me to teach aid climbing seminars and stuff and I I did that for Catherine kind of passing on those skills and I ended up in the early 2000s directing and uh, and filming and uh, actually climbing in the big wall instructional uh, aid climbing video. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I did several new routes in the old mixed free and aid climbing style, which was kind of coming full circle back to where I had been 30 years earlier. Uh, with giving it up. Uh, so, and, and I think it's, uh, it's okay. You know, you can't free climb everything, and many big walls are too hard for all but a few of the very best to free climb and to keep everyone off them just for those few people who could free climb them is probably not necessary. So, uh, and the skills of um, 
of that are developed in in uh, doing these big walls, spending many days uh, using all this different gear, climbing and hauling and sleeping on the cliff and stuff uh, on big walls in the old classic style are wonderful skills to have at your disposal in in the big uh, big roots in the Himalayas. So you're never at e uh, ill at ease, no matter how technical the climbing gets or how vertical and sheer the cliffs are. Uh, so big walls have their place in mm -hmm. in an overall training program for someone like me who's interested in uh, rock and ice and altitude mm -hmm. and the greatest and hardest climbs in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm through for the day. All well, right. I think we covered that well enough. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Today's Tuesday, November 10th. I'm Matt Driscoll, and I'm with Jeff Lowe. And today we'll be talking about um, some of Jeff's ice climbing. So, Jeff, why don't you... Tell me how you got started in ice climbing or where it went for you. Well, when I was a kid, a um, teenager, I was very interested in uh, in the books that uh, showed ice climbing, alpine ice climbing in the um, Alps on the famous north faces like the Matterhorn or the Eiger. And that's uh, ice climbing on slopes of permanent ice that uh, is metamorphosed from snow over time and becomes ice. It's called alpine ice. And uh, I was interested in that, but I never really did very much of it until um, the end of the 60s when uh, I started, uh, uh, actually I think it was 1970 when I went for the first time with my cousin George to um, the Canadian Rockies. And it was an interesting time in ice climbing because uh, there was a revolution happening, kind of a slow revolution, but over a period of a few years it really changed ice climbing and that uh, was originated by um, uh, two things happened at the same time. In Scotland, Hamish McInnes developed an ice tool with a drooped pick, ste steeply angled pick that allowed you to pull down on the shaft and it hooked in the ice and uh, didn't just pop out. The old straight pick ice axes if you swung them into the ice, they were designed for cutting steps. And um, 
they wouldn't stick. If you pulled down on the shaft, they'd pop back out. So Hamish's droop pick was a, a an amazing uh, improvement on that. But at the same time, the uh, Canadian-American climber, Yvonne Chouinard, uh, developed a curved pick that had the same ability for sticking in the ice as the drooped pick, but it had the advantage of uh, a more natural swing. You could swing it naturally, and if the curve of the pick was uh, matched to the arc of the swing, it uh, it uh, went into the ice with no conflicting forces, so it was a more natural swing and uh, felt better to me. And so I actually got started uh, in in depth with ice climbing right at the beginning of this revolution. Mm -hmm. I take it those um, inventions or innovations were 60s, having late 60s? Yeah, that mm -hmm. was when it happened, mm -hmm. these two things. And uh, um, anyway, my first alpine ice climbs in the Canadian Rockies utilized these new tools that Chenard had developed. And it allowed for faster and more secure climbing on the alpine ice slopes, too. But my brother Greg took this idea in the early years of, um, in actually in 1970 and 71, um, uh, and developed it here in Ogden. Um, he took some some European ice tools and recurved the picks and re uh, uh, heat treated them uh, so that they would be strong again. You can't just take a uh, heat treated pick and heat it and recurve it uh, and have it be strong. So you have to know what you're doing with the temp of the steel. Mm -hmm. But Greg made some tools of his own, uh, and uh, the same year we climbed the uh, in 1971. In that winter, we we climbed the the four of us, Greg and our cousins George Lowe and Dave Lowe. Uh, climbed the black ice core in winter, and Greg hadn't felt good uh, leading on that climb. So after the climb, when he got home, he went out and practiced on uh, Malin's Waterfall, which was an hour walk from the house, the old family house at the top of Lake Street. And uh, Greg went up there regularly for uh, the month of February, I think, and uh, in early March, and uh, 
practiced at the bottom of this, and then at the end of that time, he got a friend, uh, Scott Etherington, to play him, and he made the first ascent of the entire waterfall, Malin's Waterfall. And he did it by the left-hand side, which is the steepest side of it, and mm -hmm. it ends with a pitch of um, uh, 75 foot pitch, which is dead vertical with a little overhang mm -hmm. section at the top. And he did that all without hanging on, without hanging on ice screws or, um, or hanging from his ice tools either. So it's what we call free climbing mm -hmm. on ice now. Just crampons and axe. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And that was uh, probably the hardest, quote, free climbing that had ever been done on ice up to that point. It would be called uh, Water Ice 6 today. And uh, Greg showed me pictures of that climb later that spring, and it just blew my mind that you could be doing such steep ice. So the next year, he um, showed me, uh, introduced me to this type of climbing on Malin's Waterfall, and I got real excited, but it wasn't until the winter of 73, 74 that I really got to apply it to... Um, my own climbs and uh, in the winter in the fall of 73 I had been working for Colorado Outward Bound um, and one of the instructors my fellow instructors told me about a climb in uh, a waterfall, I should say, in Telluride, Colorado, called Bridalvale Falls. Bridalvale Falls? Bridalvale Falls. And uh, it's on the east end of town. I hadn't been there at that point, but he said it froze up in winter and it should make a, a really uh, exciting ice climb. And so my friend Mike Weiss and I went over to look at it in early December, and we were blown away by this 400-foot uh, vertical um, uh, um, mass of uh, just impossible-looking ice. Uh, from a climbing standpoint, but it was also at the same time very attractive with big gossamer wings spreading out mm -hmm. from this central uh, pillar of vertical ice and umbrella-shaped overhangs in the middle of it and stuff. It just seemed like... Uh, uh, at the same time, impossible, and at the same time, it made you want to climb it. And now we had the tools, and 
uh, hopefully the skills to be able to try it. Uh, one of the problems at that time was the uh, ice screws for protection weren't very good. The um, There was a European screw called a Marwa screw, M-A-R-W-A, which was made out of a kind of a thick bent wire with a kind of a corkscrew type uh, thread on the end, but uh, and it was quite, uh, it, it was, or they were heat treated to be quite uh, rigid, but they were very fragile. And we also called them coat hanger screws because they would just break if you hung much more than a coat mm -hmm. on them. And so they weren't really good protection. Also, they fractured the ice a lot going into hard water ice. So uh, those didn't work very well, and if you could get them uh, so solidly screwed in, you knew that they were going to break if you fell on them. So that wasn't a very good thing. The other uh, type of protection was much better. It was a tubular screw called a Saleva screw, S-A-L-E. W A, um, and this was a tube screw with threads on the tip that um, um, once you got it placed in water ice uh, worked quite well and was quite uh, uh, solid but you couldn't place it very well because it was uh, not, the actual tip wasn't designed uh, in a way that would go into water ice well. So in order to place those on lead, it was very desperate. And once you placed it, you, uh, uh, it, there was a core of ice that would freeze to the inside and you couldn't use them again unless you melted out the core either by putting the screws under your jacket and melting them with body heat or uh, another trick we used was to use a, a butane stove and mm -hmm. to melt them out but needless to say leading with these things and climbing with them was very slow and awkward. Precarious. Yeah. But Greg had come up with a solution that he um, had developed in the backyard. We had a swimming pool in the backyard. I was in Colorado, but Greg still lived in a house next to my parents' house and shared this swimming pool. And in the winter, one that winter, he let the, uh, they didn't empty the pool and let it freeze over. And that was his testing rig for 
new eye screw designs. And he designed a, um, came up with a design where it was a hollow tube with a, uh, the tip beveled to the inside that, so that as you uh, pounded this tube in, the uh, forces uh, were directed inside the tube and shattered the core going into the tube, but very little outward force was directed out into the ice. So you could drive these things in to even very hard, um, um, unaerated uh, water ice, and they still wouldn't fracture much. And the fact that you could pound them in made all the difference. You didn't have to try to screw them in using the leverage from the pick of an ice tool um, to turn the screw as you did in with saliva screws. And so Greg made uh, Mike Weiss and me half a dozen of these um, chromoly tubes with the um, tips beveled to the inside. And we uh, went to climb Bridalville, and actually, um, Mike and my brother Mike and Greg came along to film us on this thing too, because Greg was getting into filmmaking. So we went, and uh, I think it was. Uh, December 31st, 1973, we started up uh, Bridalville. And on the first pitch, we noticed some problems with our gear and, and so on and uh, didn't get too far very fast. So we repelled off to regroup. And the next morning after having a New Year's celebration. But Mike and I didn't uh, go overboard on our celebrating, and we went back to Bridalville and made the first ascent of this climb, which was really um, an eye-opener. We, we weren't aware of any climb that had been done uh, to date in a in a, this free climbing style uh, anywhere uh, of a climb so steep and so serious and we weren't <laughs> we actually even had a couple of uh, belays that were hanging off our ice screw protection or these tubes that Greg had designed for us and um, we weren't sure the whole thing would just tip over mm -hmm. with us on it. It was so steep. Uh, we've learned since then that 
um, when to know that you shouldn't be on them. But in the middle of winter, these things are frozen solid and reasonably re reliable. Um, but the, all the way up the climb, we just marveled at how uh, unique the formations were and climbing over these roofs of icicles and, uh, and uh, um, you know, pitches of uh, vertical um, ice was a real uh, eye-opener. Mm -hmm. And when we got to the top, we hadn't used aid except for Mike had, on the crux pitch, Mike had tried to go over a, he had knocked a hole in a, a curtain of icicles and tried to climb over an overhang and came back and he did rest on one screw before finally getting that. And that mm -hmm. was the only aid we used on the climb. You, you used one of Greg's new screws? Mm-hmm. And I take it the screws worked pretty well. Oh, yeah, I I think they're, well, we've since tested them, and mm -hmm. they were the prototypes for what we developed into mm -hmm. a commercial um, a product called a SNARG, which was, uh, Greg named the design after Flash Gordon's sword in the old Flash Gordon television show, and it was... Uh, yeah, the Flash Gordon sword was called named Snarg, and he named these things Snargs. Mm -hmm. um, S N A R G. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but they were revolutionary for protecting these kind of climbs, and provided good protection. Mm -hmm. uh, but we had um, our minds had been open. When Mike and I got to the top of Bridalville, um, we realized that we would never have to consider any ice climb in terms of aid from there on out, whether it would be in the mountains or or on waterfalls. So, and we we were both very turned on to this type of ice climb that point. And in the early 70s, there was uh, development in North America toward this kind of ice climbing. In Montana, Pat Callis and friends were doing some steep climbs, nothing like Bridalville, but uh, slightly easier, but uh, using the new gear. And in Canada, they were doing some good climbs and, in fact, had done a climb very similar to Bridalville called Nemesis, which, um, but they had done it using aid techniques and uh, multiple days to, to climb it. Uh, and so there was little tension between the Canadians and the Americans at that point. 
and I wrote an article um, kind of criticizing the techniques they were using, and I uh, I was young, and I wish I hadn't done it, but uh, over the years it all worked out, mm -hmm. and everybody's free climbing now. So I was right, but I didn't need to write the article mm -hmm. in the way that I did. Uh, was what were you? What were you critical about? There, well, they were using bolts uh, to protect these some of the climbs up there, and they were uh, aiding them and fixing ropes, mm -hmm. pitch after pitch, and spending multiple days on relatively short climbs, and it just seemed like not a very good style uh, of climbing. It seemed well, I'm little, curious, well, why not? Well, it just didn't seem very sporty. Mm -hmm. um, and the bolts on ice climbs, um, pure ice climbs like these were, often get covered up with ice. And so my thinking was we were opening up a can of worms where... <laughs> each party would end up placing new bolts and we'd have bolts everywhere. Mm -hmm. It wasn't quite like that, but um, um, anyway, that was my concern. Mm -hmm. And I, I came out and criticized them. And it took a number of years for the Canadians to forgive me. Yeah. <laughs> It's bad to have the Canadians against you, right? Well, yeah, especially <laughs> since I liked yeah. climbing up there. Um, but at any rate, Bridalwell just blew both Mike Weiss and myself uh, away with uh, um, with the potential that it opened up. And so for the next few winters, uh, all our spare time, Mike's and mine and other partners, we spent looking for more of these types of climbs to do. And we found many of them in uh, Western North America and all the way on up into through Canada and into Alaska. And uh, over the next four or five winters, I ended up doing probably a couple hundred of these climbs and they hadn't been done before then. So they were all first ascents. And um, many classics uh, we completed at that time, um, classics in Provo Canyon, like Stairway to Heaven and Stewart Falls and uh, um, The Fang and classics in uh, in uh, Colorado and. Uh, And um, 
You mentioned Montana as a place where the movement was going on. Yeah. Was there much in Montana? Yeah, I never climbed much in Montana, but they were doing good climbs up there Mm -hmm. and then up in the Rockies. And uh, in 76, I visited my girlfriend, Christy Northrup, who was a cook on a tugboat up there in the winter. Visitor in February up in... uh, um, what's the name of the little port where Val- Valdez, Alaska, and uh, uh, my friend John Wyland was also working on a tug up there, and we went ice climbing and made the first uh, ascents of. Uh, several climbs along the low river, not named after me, Mm -hmm. but uh, the low river that comes into uh, the the bay there in in Valdez. And um, these were great ice climbs. Uh, Keystone Green Steps and several others like that nice long 600 foot waterfalls and opened up that area to ice climbing and since that time it's become very popular uh, there as well so i spent as i said four or five years looking for more of these ice climbs and doing probably a couple hundred of them, but I finally got a little bored with waterfall climbs and just uh, really focused on um, the Himalayas and big roots there. And But the, the skills that we had learned on the waterfalls were direct, directly at, uh, uh, responsible for our ability to do some of the big routes in the Himalayas that we would end up doing. My last um, uh, waterfall climb of that era, that uh, last first ascent of the late 70s, and after which I really took kind of a 10-year break from waterfall climbing was again with Mike Weiss in the Canadian Rockies when we made the first ascent of um, a route called uh, Curtain Call um, off the Icefields Highway uh, near uh, Saskatchewan. Is it Saskatchewan Pass? I forget the name. It's right near the... um, It's across from the north face of Mount Kitchener. And we uh, did it, I think, in February, and it was incredibly cold, like 35 below zero at night, getting up to 20 below during the day, maybe. And... uh, really cold, and the four pitches were, um, uh, when it's cold like that, 
that the ice is extremely brittle mm -hmm. makes climbing a lot harder. Mm -hmm. But we did that climb in uh, in uh, once again the style that we had developed developed at the beginning. Uh, uh, free ice, uh, free ice climbing style, and uh, and I think that is still rated uh, WI six water ice six. Um, so it was a high standard, but I'd lost some interest in this kind of climbing because just like with uh, big wall climbing. A few few years earlier, I'd gotten to the point where I didn't really have to be very fit uh, to do the hardest climbs. Mm -hmm. I, I could start at the bottom of uh, any of these waterfalls and climb up and mm -hmm. get to the top. Mm -hmm. And it lost some attraction for me, although the look of a frozen waterfall is still dramatic and I was attracted to that, but the size wasn't what I was looking for. I really was uh, long climbs and the longer the climb, the better has always been sort of what's attracted me the most. So in the Himalayas, Although the biggest and best climbs are mixed rock and ice, and we've already discussed many of those, there was sort of a subset of goals that I had to take this, the skills we learned on the frozen waterfalls and apply them to bigger climbs in the Himalaya. And in 1982, I, or 81, I had gone on a uh, medical research expedition to Mount Everest, and afterwards I had been met in base camp by my fiance Janie Hanneken. Uh, we got married the next year in 82, but um, we were not married yet, and we hiked around the Kumbu after the expedition and looked at things, and one of the, um, uh, I, I just remember hiking up the trail above Namchi Bazaar toward the village of Hungo, and this ridge suddenly uh, across the river, suddenly dropping out of the way and revealing this beautiful wall on a mountain called Kwangde. And uh, the, the wall is about 5,000 feet high. And uh, in, in the... Um, in the fall and spring has lines of kind of stripes on the lower half of waterfall ice on 
it's kind of like having El Capitan with lines of waterfall ice mm-hmm. striping it. And so it just, um, for me, it was totally attractive. And um, Janie, you know, heard me, you know, enthusing about this. And she finally said, well, you better come back and climb it then, Jeff. Mm-hmm. And so that was in 81. So I came back the next year with my friend, David Brashears, and we um, we climbed the north face of Kwangde uh, in, in four days and uh, making bivouacs in little, what we call, Bat, bat tents, um, uh, which, uh, but in doing this climb, we established what at the time was probably the best ice climb in the world. And it was 20 years before it had a second ascent. Not because it was so hard, it was just people were not quite thinking, uh, envisioning these climbs yet at that time. But it turned out to be just a wonderful four days of steep uh, climbing on this, uh, in the Himalayan winter, uh, in a beautiful area of peaks. And each evening, the clouds would roll up the valleys and, and, kind of uh, obscure the peaks. And, um, but in the night, they'd, they'd uh, uh, subside down to a level that was uh, four or 5,000 feet below us. So we were still in the, in the starry, starry night sky, and we had a full moon on the climb, so... Uh, David got a picture that's uh, looking over to Everest with the moon rising above Everest and these clouds in the moonlight below us and all the peaks sticking out. Mm -hmm. That's one of the finest pictures I've ever seen of the Himalayas and it's it's become quite an iconic uh, poster and was on the National you know, in National Geo, and mm-hmm. was a beautiful shot. But that reminds me of that um, that time spent on Kwang Day. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you were saying that um, this was in 82 when you and Dave climbed Kwang Day, and this was kind of the right. best ice climb that had done, been done in the world up to that point. Yeah, mm-hmm. probably so, and it was, it was not till... Um, the early 2000s that it was repeated. And m- many people did try to repeat it, and a Spanish team did a, a route on the far right side of the face that only climbed about half the face and then got on the ridge to the right. But they were the closest anyone came to repeating until I was 2001 or 2002 when a couple of 
British guys repeated it. And uh, they took the same length of time Dave and I had taken. And they uh, commented that it wasn't incredibly difficult, just long climbing. Mm -hmm. And that's how Dave and I had reported it too. Mm -hmm. But this is 20 years after the fact with 20 years of uh, gear improvement and so on. So the climb has really held up well. And in the last eight or nine years, uh, four or five more routes have have been done on the face, and our route has had one or two more repeats. But mm -hmm. it's 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 become sort of a classic landmark climb in uh, of, of that type in mm -hmm. the Himalayas and in the world ice climbing scene. But even after, even when Dave and I first climbed it, we we didn't think it was an ultimate ice climb. We knew there were harder routes to do in the Himalayas, and we already started looking for them. And over the next uh, uh, six or eight years, um, uh, we did some climbs that were um, more difficult than Quang Day, but they tended uh, to become more mixed, a little bit more rock, mm -hmm. mixed rock and ice thrown in with it. And the route that uh, uh, on the northwest ridge in face of uh, Gantega that uh, Mark Dwight and Allison Hargraves and I um, and and uh, Tom Tom Frost did in '86 was actually uh, pretty much a pure ice climb with mm -hmm. some mixed climbing thrown in. That wouldn't have been possible really in any kind of uh, decent style before the development of this water waterfall ice climbing uh, techniques and gear. And um, in Peru, on the, uh, on the west uh, pillar of Taulerajo, <laughs> um, with Alex Lowe in 83, that climb wouldn't have been possible without having experience on these frozen waterfalls too. Uh -huh. So the frozen waterfall experience really led directly to opening up some of the best routes in the high mountains in uh -huh. the world. Um, and um, probably the hardest climbing on the high peaks that... Um, I ever did was with John Roskelly on on Toache, which we've talked about mm -hmm. already. Um, but 
the hard climbing on that was mixed climbing, although there was some hard, pure rock climbing as well. But by the late 80s, I had, so I had been through kind of the big wall, pure rock climbing era and decided that free climbing suited me better. I've been through the water, pure waterfall climbing era and decided that I needed something bigger and harder, went to the Himalayas, but, um, and was led eventually to mix climbs of mixed rock and ice that can be the most difficult and challenging of all uh, mediums. And then I started to kind of backtrack a little and look for mixed climbs, harder mixed climbs on the on the uh, mountains clo closer to home. And one of the first um, deliberate attempts that I made to uh, <clears throat> find more gymnastically difficult climbing um, in winter at home was in uh, on a climb called Bird Break Boulevard in outside of Uray. Is that Bird Brain Boulevard? Yeah, mm -hmm. outside of Uray, Colorado. It's b below uh, an old mine called Camp Bird Mine, and the name's a takeoff on that. But uh, uh, I was down there shooting a catalog for uh, my old company, Latok Climbing Gear, which was a spin-off from Low Alpine System. Uh, and it was probably 85 or 86 that we were shooting this. It was in the winter. And uh, <coughs> I always used to try and combine work with play. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I had seen this line of thinly iced uh, chimney line through this thousand foot cliff band of of rock up the canyon towards Camp Birdmine. And so I grabbed a couple of the guys who were working on the photo shoot for the catalog who were good climbers, uh, Mark Wilford and Charlie Fowler. And we went up and climbed uh, Bird Brain Boulevard. And in fact, though the climb looked like from across the valley that it was gonna have some incredibly difficult overhanging sections, it didn't turn out to be quite as hard as we thought it would be. It was uh, at the hardest what we would call M6 now, which we had been doing already for years. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the line itself was a thousand feet of um, 
improbable looking climbing that has since become a a, a classic, a well known classic. But it didn't really uh, uh, do the thing I had hoped, which was lead us on into a new era of greater technical difficulty on mixed rock and ice. So though it was uh, meant to do, be an attempt at that, it never actually panned out. Mm -hmm. And a couple of years later, in um, up on the east face of Long's Peak, uh, we did another climb with uh, Duncan Ferguson and, and Malcolm Daly that uh, I thought would maybe do the same thing. And it also was kind of like this, uh, the Bird Brain Boulevard. It looked more difficult than it turned out to be, but it was actually an attempt to find greater difficulties. Mm -hmm. And it's this mirror of fear. And just like uh, Bird Brain Boulevard, it, became, it has become a classic. Um, and what's it called? Uh, smear of Fear. And the difficulties of that were more on uh, pure ice, but the fact that it was very thin over the granite rock and very little protection is uh, why it has the name smear of fear. So those were attempts to increase the difficulties without without actually yielding higher level difficulties, but mm -hmm. they yielded great climbs mm -hmm. that wouldn't have been um, even considered climbs in years before by people who looked at them. Mm -hmm. um, it was a new, we had to look at them with new eyes. And then I went, uh, I was spending a lot of time in Europe, in the, particularly in France in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. And, um, I had uh, tried a new route on the Grand Jurass, the north face of the Grand Jurass, with Catherine Destabel in the winter of 91. And we hadn't succeeded, but uh, part of the reason we didn't succeed is I ran out of time. I had an obligation to attend a ice climbing meeting in... Um, Hmm. I forget the name of the little French town. Um, anyway, a little French town that that had been hosting this meeting for several years, and I was obligated to go do a talk there and stuff. 
And so we came down off of uh, the Grand Jurassic and I got there in time to do my talk. But then I spent several days climbing in the area. And um, one of France's best climbers, uh, Terry Renault, asked me one afternoon if I wanted to go to a, a good big new route with him on a uh, on in an area called the Tete de Grand du Gramassat. And that uh, I had heard about it. I hadn't actually seen it, this area, but it's a big uh, limestone cliff about 1,500 feet high that has various ice lines uh, uh, trickling down it in winter and, and lots of overhangs and um, really spectacular terrain. So I agreed to go uh, with Terry, sight unseen, to this thing the next morning. And we went to bed, and Terry got me up in the dark. and We had some breakfast and uh, drove up as far as we could drive up this uh, valley before it was blocked off and not plowed any further. Then got on our skis and skied up to this climb and uh, arrived at the base about the time it was becoming light enough to see. And uh, I, we were at the base of a huge pillar of ice and uh, I said, well, Terry, where are we going? He pointed up, and looking up, all I could see is these huge overhangs and uh, curtains of ice draping off them and stuff, and I couldn't see the top. I could see about 400 feet of fantastic uh, and, and, and impressive terrain, and so we... I said, oh, okay, I see what you mean. It looks looks pretty good. Mm. So we started up, and we spent uh, uh, probably 10 hours uh, making this climb, which we called uh, Blind Faith, because I had to uh, <clears throat> follow Terry's uh, suggestion on Blind Faith. And it... Um, about 400 feet up where I've been able to see from the base, we came to a, a roof of about six meters or 18 feet uh, and uh, some ice daggers hanging out of that and uh, a crack in the rock getting out there and, and, uh, and Terry was leading at that point, and he used a couple of pitons at, at various points on the roof to get out to the hanging, uh, where he could get back onto the hanging ice out at the lip.
And it was um, very exciting to watch him. But as I followed the um, pitch, I realized, and I actually did some of these aid moves without the, using the pitons, just using the picks of my axe in axes in the cracks mm-hmm. and so on. And I realized that we could have done it in a what we call a free mixed climbing style now, uh, but we didn't do it. So we did this uh, 1,500-foot route, 12 pitches, with two or three points of aid on it. It was still very hard. Some of the pitches were um, uh, grade 6 or 6-plus, even big overhang umbrellas on full vertical pitches of of um, water ice but that route got me thinking that here's an approach here's where we can find mm-hmm. uh, really move this mixed climbing difficulty to a higher level and so back in the States, in Colorado, I started looking for harder climbs to do uh, with overhangs like this. And uh, we had always, for years, uh, 20 years, we used um, an area in East Vale uh, for ice climbing practice and one of Colorado's uh, most famous single pitch pillars of ice is called um, the Fang in Vale and it's next to uh, what's called the rigid designator but between those two things is a uh, overhang with a curtain of ice draped off at most winters. And uh, that's what I decided to go and try and do and and repeat the experience of blind faith, but do it uh, without hanging from the pitons in the rock or ice, just using the ice tools. And I did that with my wife at the time, Terry Abel. Uh, well, actually, she was my fiance. This, <laughs> I'm going through wives kind of quickly here, but I had gotten divorced in 1990. And this was 94. And uh, <clears throat> I had uh, met and... Uh, Terry Abel was, um, uh, we had uh, become engaged earlier in the winter, but she was learning to ice climb, and mm-hmm. she came and belayed me on the first ascent of Octopussy, which is what we called uh, the climb. 
And uh, I was able to do this climb using a technique that had been developed for rock climbing called a figure four, which allows you on an overhanging route, a roof like this, to get stabilized and get, oh, six or eight extra inches of reach. You actually turn upside down while you're hanging on these holds and stick one leg uh, through one of your arms and actually end up hooking your knee over your elbow and ho hoisting yourself up higher on your arm by your leg. It's uh, Sounds like it takes some flexibility. It's a figure <laughs> four. But it's hard enough to do a rock climbing. Mm -hmm. But you've got crampons and all these things. Mm -hmm. and But it worked. Mm -hmm. And it allowed me to do this climb. I used two of these figure fours in a row and established a new level of uh, free climbing difficulty on mixed for mixed climbing. Uh, this was grade eight and... Uh, grade six or maybe seven was the highest uh, level of difficulty that had been done prior to that. And the figure four turned out to be uh, a key to many of these roof routes that uh, because the photos from Octopussy were so outrageous and inspiring, it actually sparked a worldwide um, um, interest in a new style of mixed climbing. So over the next 10 years, many people uh, got involved in this, and, and uh, nowadays this style of mixed climbing is already well established mm -hmm. and has led to uh, greater directly to more difficult climbs in the high peaks and Himalayas, the Alps and Himalayas. Mm -hmm. So it's got a direct application to greater mountaineering mm -hmm. as well. So, um, essentially, Bridalville was one of the landmarks in the uh, uh, in ice climbing and really opened up the world of uh, vertical water ice to uh, to the general climbing public and brought the attention to it. And then this uh, octopusy did the uh -huh. same thing for mixed climbing. Uh -huh. One of the things that I didn't really like about octopusy is um, people took it to an extreme in the years after octopusy and started <clears throat> doing almost full pitches of what's called dry tooling with hardly any ice around, they would just climb the rock with their tools to get to a little dribble of ice at the end of a 
pitch or something. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of ugly to me, not mm -hmm. really. And, and they would place bolts. And so it was kind of like the winter counterpart of sports, sport climbing. And it wasn't the, the most aesthetic thing to me. I had always wanted to do things with at least a 50-50 mix of rock and ice. Mm -hmm. And the ice makes it beautiful and mm -hmm. to climb that way. and makes it a natural way to climb, where mm -hmm. if it's just rock, I mean, why not use your hands and feet mm -hmm. in that? normal way except in winter it's too cold but mm -hmm. um anyway there was something lacking for that yeah and so over the next few years i was looking for beautiful mixed climbs to do and uh i found two that were were really uh, two in particular that 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 uh, were the best of these kind of uh, stateside crag mix lines and and look good to look at and the climbing itself was at least as much ice as rock and really more ice than rock mm -hmm. but um, and one of them was in. Uh, Glenwood Canyon, Colorado. And I was teaching ice climbing courses in the uh, mid-90s uh, called Master's Seminars and uh, usually teaching uh, existing climbers how to take their ice climbing uh, further mm -hmm. and uh, I was teaching some of these in, in Uray, Colorado and driving to Uray from my home in Boulder or actually Nederland uh, outside of Boulder <clears throat> I would pass this uh, classic old waterfall climb called um, Glenwood Falls every every time and up and up, up to the left and above Glenwood Falls over the years I had noticed at times a big overhanging chimney about 400 feet high that occasionally after uh, large snowfalls followed by uh, cold temperatures for several weeks there it would develop some huge icicles in the back of this chimney and i thought that someday i would want to climb that so you were saying that uh between these drives from um where you lived in netherlands and right. um where you were teaching ice waterfall climbing classes you discovered or you had noticed glenwood falls yeah. for a while in this little um Climb above Up it. Above it, mm -hmm. yeah. And the winter of uh, uh, probably 
it was 95 or 96, I forget which one. <coughs> I was driving down for a master's course, and on the way down, I noticed that this uh, feature, this big, deep chimney thing that I'd been watching for years seemed to be iced up about as well as I'd ever seen it. So on the way past, I... Uh, by now we had cell phones, and, and I took out my cell phone and I uh, dialed up uh, a friend uh, by the name of Will Gadd, who's a Canadian who spent a lot of time climbing in America, and he had recently uh, gotten re-interested re in ice climbing and mixed climbing, primarily because of the um, pictures of uh, he had seen of, of um, uh, octopusy. And he had looked me up earlier that winter to do some climbing. So we got along well, and he was very enthusiastic to be included on anything new. So when I called him, he agreed to meet me in a few days after the course. Mm -hmm. uh, and we would uh, go up on this new new climb. And we did that. And the first day we went up, we didn't succeed in completing the climb. We uh, It's three pitches. And the first pitch I led, which is basically uh, just... Uh, it was mostly dry rock and uh, kind of scary climbing, but not um, nothing too special. And uh, ending with a little bit of ice right at the top to a ledge. And then the second pitch, which was Will's, was uh, mostly ice with a little bit of mixed climbing in it, and very fun at about grade five. And then uh, the third pitch, though, that second pitch let, led us up into this big, deep cave, and um, <clears throat> the top of the pitch, the belay, left us in the back of the throat of this cave, and we were looking out and up at the next pitch, and it was a good 50 or 60 feet mm -hmm. of uh, a forest of hanging icicles, huge, anywhere from 5 feet around and 20 feet long to <coughs> little fingers of ice. But it was uh, it absolutely looked impossible to climb out that thing. And so it was just what we were looking for. <laughs> and it was my pitch, and I, uh, we had gotten a late start. And it was already getting late. But I started out this thing and just working my way out through these overhanging chandeliers of ice. 
And it was the most fascinating and time-consuming climbing I think I've ever done. I had to kind of clear most of the icicles away as I went, uh, just so I could find something substantial enough to use on my way out. But I got all the way out to where it turned the lip of this cave and started up the uh, upper part of the chimney and it was getting dark and I was feeling rushed and I placed one ice axe at, at the lip in a kind of a V. I, it was a V at the lip and I had, it was narrow and constricted and hanging from that ice axe I couldn't find a place to put my other one except quite neck, quite close mm-hmm. to the I, the first one. And I knew it was a little shaky to try and place it there, but I thought I'd try it gently. And when I hit it, the whole ice broke out, and mm-hmm. I went for about a 30-foot fall into space mm-hmm. out of the mouth of this cave. And it was dark already, or nearly dark, uh, so it was kind of disappointing. But I went back into the belay, uh, and Will, even though it was dark, he had a headlamp and said, well, let me at least, uh, using the rope you've got out to that point, uh, let me... Let me try it with. Mm-hmm. So he climbed with the top rope that section out to there by headlamp, and we rappelled off. And we both were supposed to be somewhere the next day, but we agreed that um, that was too good to to not complete it. So uh, Will's wife was there and. Uh, my wife Terry was there, and we uh, got a motel and spent the night, and went up the next morning. Went mm-hmm. went back and completed it mm-hmm. with Will leading the top pitch. Wow. And even after turning the lip of the cave, the climbing was still um, overhanging up through the upper chimney through these big stalactites of ice, huge uh, quirks of ice, and Will, after doing, after completing that pitch, um, said it was the best pitch he'd ever Mm. climbed, and it wasn't so hard. It was grade seven, but uh, for both of us, probably the most unique uh, pitch, and and because of that, so aesthetic, that it, that's the type of mixed climbing uh, that really grabbed me and mm-hmm. made me want to do more of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, but they're so rare to find those climbs. There, mm-hmm. there's a, a a few I know of that are in that category. There's one called Flying Circus in. Switzerland, uh, which is 
a big overhang with these stalactites dripping out of it and you climb from one stalactite to another taking care you don't break them off and uh, it's just a fabulous uh, and unlikely way to climb but mm -hmm. um, very beautiful in mm -hmm. its own right. How often do you go up uh, seeing a potential climb and uh, you get up there and it's not what you thought it would be something like that, something as aesthetic like that. Is there a lot of just like... Well, to an extent, that's kind of what happened with that Bird Brain Boulevard mm -hmm. one. It was quite different. It was considerably easier than we thought it would be when mm -hmm. we looked at it from a distance. But it was still aesthetic, mm -hmm. so it was still a beautiful climb, just not as hard as we had hoped. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, climbs are always different mm -hmm. when you're on them than what they look like from a far away. Mm -hmm. uh, so you actually have to go to the climb and get on it before you really know what it's all mm -hmm. about. Um, I guess I was curious because you said you'd driven by that, you know, Glenwood yeah. Falls so many times and it's like, okay, your curiosity starts to get a hold yeah. of you and you're like, I gotta go up there and see what's up there. And when it turns and out, it's, it's amazing. We, but in many cases, probably like, you know, it's not. Yeah, we could have mm -hmm. gone up and been disappointed. Mm -hmm. In this case, it was better than we expected. Mm -hmm. And it was not more challenging. I mean, like I said, when we first got up into the uh, back of that throat, and actually the climb is called Deep Throat, mm -hmm. um, uh, um, and looking out through those teeth, uh, it, it looked ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no way, but it all worked out quite well. Mm -hmm. Not even that hard, relatively. I mean, hard, but uh, it had a second ascent just uh, two years ago. Mm -hmm. And the people who did the second ascent said it was the most uh, uh, amazing climb of their lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a special climb. Mm -hmm. So that's the type of thing I was looking for. And one, one climb, there was another climb different in nature, uh, uh, but equally as good in its own right. That I did the next year in, uh, after a um, seminar that I uh, presented back in um, um, upstate New York on uh, uh, for a uh, for a guide service back there called Rock and River mm -hmm. out of Keene, New York, and uh, we had I had done a seminar. I think two or I think this was the third year in a row up there and we'd always had good time and there's great ice climbing in the winter in upstate New 
York in the Adirondacks. Mm -hmm. Lots of wet weather and ice draped over these outcrops of granite that uh, sprinkle the hills up there. Um, and there's one great, uh, really good cliff of granite. <coughs> 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 This cliff is called Poco Moonshine, and it's up to 450 or 500 feet high. And, and there, this is in upstate New York? Yeah, whereabouts? in the Adirondacks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, where we're, you know, around Lake Placid and, and north in the east of Lake Placid. Mm -hmm. Placid. Um, the uh, Poco Moonshine's actually just uh, on the way to Canada mm -hmm. uh, from there. And I forget the highway that goes right past Poco Moonshine. But um, I usually try to end each of my seminars with uh, an a new little route uh, by leading a new route that the students could see what it took. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you're doing a new route, you're making all these decisions. You don't know if it, if it's really going to go well or not. Mm -hmm. um, and it's different than just repeating things that, you know, work and stuff so it's good to show people that uh, the care you take and so on in, in uh, establishing a new climb sometimes I would even back off and not complete it mm -hmm. and because things weren't right and that was instructive to the students as well also it was a way I could just get some good climbing in mm -hmm. so uh, the previous year uh, <clears throat> on Poco Moonshine, I had finished with a route that um, uh, was a really nice aesthetic one-pitch climb uh, up a dihedral cap by a roof with a tongue of ice hanging out of it. And I, I had been on that climb when... Uh, a trucker came by and yelled out, uh, get a job, asshole. <laughs> so that, then that became the name of the coin. <laughs> I tried to yell back, this is my job, asshole, but uh, didn't think quickly enough to do that. But uh, that was a good climb, but I had noticed at the higher end of the cliff, that an area they call the Big Wall area of the cliff, which is home to many aid routes um, where climbers practice techniques for El, Cap El Capitan and so on. Um, but there was a very gossamer frosting of um, 
ice on one section of that wall and uh, it looked totally unclimbable but by this time I, I had realized almost anything's climbable mm -hmm. if you just open up your mind and so I uh, I, I uh, asked the director of um, Rock and River, uh, Ed um, Palin, if he wanted to do, uh, to go try this uh, for Pitch Root uh, the day after the seminar. And he agreed that he wanted to do it. So we went and we did it. The first pitch was the crux, which had very uh, little ice on it and was um, unprotected for the first 40 feet or so and then poorly protected after that. But the climb went exceptionally well and wasn't even that hard. Once again, it was... Uh, maybe M6 plus or so, but four pitches of unusually interesting, beautiful, dramatic climbing up uh, this, quote, big wall section of Poco Moonshine. And we called that climb Gorillas in the Mist, which was a film that had come out about that time. Um, but the name sounded real good. It was misty all day that day. And we were just a couple of ice climbing gorillas having fun. <laughs> but that climb has become uh, uh, like... Um, uh, like deep throat, mm -hmm. uh, 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 desirable classic for people to do. And that's a, another example of the type of climbing that drew my attention. And, and because it's ice, even though barely iced, it's still a, a, mix, a true mixed climb. It's not dry rock, using ice tools on dry dry rock for a whole pitch. And it's not certainly not bolt protected. Half the challenge is in doing this climbing. It's not really that difficult, but it's high standard mm -hmm. with almost no protection. Mm -hmm. And having the um, confidence to do that securely. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> that's the end of my ice climbing. Mm -hmm. I have two quick questions. Um, one real one real short one. Um, do you ever get up somewhere and figure you can't climb it? Doesn't, yeah. doesn't seem like that happens very often. Now. Well, not too often. <laughs> but I... I I one, I mean, I was uh, doing on one of these courses uh, in um, in uh, 
what's it called? Hidden Canyon down here, Durango, uh, Colorado. I was on a uh, attempting a new route in front of the students, and I had climbed a corner, <clears throat> iced up corner, but I hadn't been able to get any any real reliable protection in the corner, and mm -hmm. I was about 45, 50 feet up, and I had to go on to this overhanging tongue of ice, and uh, and I got onto it, and I still had nowhere I was that I could see ahead, mm -hmm. where I could get anything um, reasonable for protection. And I'm not out to hurt myself, especially in front of a group of students. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I got one tool placed well in that fragile tongue of ice, and then I clipped a carabiner into the uh, bottom uh, spike, which has a carabiner hole, mm -hmm. and I had my layer lower me off. And then, once on the ground, I asked the students to back off a little bit, and I flipped the rope and unhooked the ice axe, and it came down. Mm -hmm. And so there was nothing left up there, and it was like a, kind of a... On the one hand, it showed that I was, I was willing to back off before getting hurt. Yeah. And on the other hand, it showed... How close you came. <laughs> yeah, well, and how... How um, I mean, I was confident that my pick was would hold me. I knew it would, mm -hmm. but it's it's uh, it's a close call when you're able to just flick it out with the rope at mm -hmm. the end of mm -hmm. uh, being lowered off. No doubt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, my other question had to do with you, you mentioned. Um, writing that article um, that was a critique of the way certain people were climbing. Um, and you're talking about some of these seminars where mm -hmm. you taught. Um, I'm curious about to what degree you sort of, without tooting your own horn or anything, to what degree you sort of became a spokesperson for a certain type of climbing, in this case, ice climbing oh, during I, this period. I, there, it's not tooting my horn. It's uh -huh. just I, I've, I've been very influential. Mm -hmm. That way, and mm -hmm. uh, I've had influence, primary influence on ice, the direction of ice climbing worldwide mm -hmm. for 20, 30, more than 30 years, and also with the direction of alpine style climbing in, in the Himalayas mm -hmm. um, and free climbing on big walls I've had less of an impact but an important one there too mm -hmm. so all those areas I've had some lasting um, impact on the the way they're practiced mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Great. So we got that done. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please keep in mind that the views and opinions expressed in this interview are solely those of the oral history participants and do not reflect any views, opinions, or official policy at the University of Utah or the J. Willard Marriott Library. For more information about this podcast, check out the ascentarchive.lib.utah.edu. That's A-S-C-E-N-T-A-R-C-H-I-V-E dot L-I-B dot Utah dot E-D-U. The Ascent Archive podcast team includes librarians Tally Casucci and myself, Rachel Whitman. Special thanks to Leah Donaldson for graphic and website design, Brian Elias Hole for music, and thanks to the University of Utah Special Collections and the American West Center. And lastly, the rock climbing community for participating in these interviews and listening. Mm-hmm.